Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me for this episode is my wife and this week's fill-in co-host, Carol Brown. Say hello, Carol. Hello. I'm the temp and I'm back. Yeah. Scott has taken some work that precludes him from being here on Wednesday nights when we record. He says that he'll only be away for a month, so we'll hear from him again in approximately four weeks, I guess, four episodes. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. This is episode 71. Yes. Scott would usually say that's the one after 70. 70. It's yeah. not 69. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. A reminder for those of you planning on going to CrimeCon but have yet to buy tickets, if you want 10% off your ticket, use our code poutine19, that's the word poutine with the numbers 1 and 9, at checkout when buying your tickets on the CrimeCon.com site. A few of you have already done that, which is awesome. I saw that in the Yard. People are using the code. Yes. Poutine19. People are using the code. So who knows? Uh, Scott and I might get our room comped in, uh, in, uh, in New Orleans. If enough, if enough people do it. Who knows? So our friend Alan Warren wants to give some books away again. Again? Again. That man's got unlimited amount of books. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's the case. This week's first giveaway is for our American listeners only. Don't worry, Canadians. There's goodies for you, too. Alan wants to give away 25 copies of his book to American users of Amazon Kindle. So, if you don't have a Kindle, you won't be able to read this book. Because that's the only place it's being released right now. It's brand new. The book is called In Chains... The Dangerous World of Human Trafficking. Starting on April 29th, 2019, the first 25 American Kindle users who email Alan at Radio Cub, that's Cub with two Bs, at gmail.com with in chains dark poutine in the subject line will get a Kindle copy of Alan's book. There's only one hitch. You have to promise to give the book a rating and a quick written review on Amazon. I think that's a pretty good trade-off for something that's free. We expect the 25 copies to go quickly, so give her. Nice. Very nice. Kindles. For our Canadian listeners, Alan wants to give away 12 books, either Kindle or paperback, of one of his short read books titled Drinks, Dinner, and Death. Ooh. So again, starting on April 29th, the first 12 Canadian listeners who email Alan at Radio Cub, that's Cub with two Bs, at gmail.com with drinks dinner and death canada in the subject line will get either a kindle or paperback copy of that book again you're getting something for nothing so please leave a rating and review of alan's book it helps him to get better positioning on amazon thanks excuse me i'm going to email right now no you can't oh more for you guys then i'll probably be able to get you a copy somehow okay Shh. perks well, uh, maybe I'll borrow yours. I yeah, I don't have a copy yet. <laughs> okay. Sharesies. All right. So thank you, Alan Warren, for doing that for us. We really appreciate it. You can learn more about Alan and his NBC syndicated radio show, House of Mystery, at his website, somethingweirdmedia.com. Thank you, Alan. Thank so you. So nice. Thank you very much. On with the show. Out of respect, I won't be attempting my shitty Newfoundland accent this week. Oh, but I understand why. Yeah. 
In this episode, we're heading as far east in Canada as we've ever been. We're going to the tiny town of Fleur-de-Lis in Newfoundland off Route 410 at the northern tip of Bay Verte Peninsula. Oh, do they speak French there? The history is that the area was first utilized by French seasonal fishermen in the 1500s. Oh, cool. This is how the place got its name, Fleur-de-Lis. But because it wasn't a permanent settlement... It didn't get the recognition that a place like Port Royal does or Port Royal. Ooh, fancy. Fancy French names. But still, Fleur de Lis is pretty good. It's a beautiful name. Yeah. As well as fishing, the town's economy has been reliant on seal hunting, mining, and lumber. After the closure of the mine in 1992 and then the codfish moratorium in 1993, the population of Fleur de Lis declined to around 240 where it sits today. So it's a very, very small town. 240 people, all in. All in. Oh. A quick search on Google Maps and a look at the street view of Fleur-de-Lis really gives one a good feel for how tiny and remote this place actually is. Look. It's such a quaint little town, eh? So tiny. And it reminds me a lot of places that I'm familiar with back in Nova Scotia as well. It definitely has that East Coast appeal that I miss so much. Yeah. Of note nearby is a small museum and interpretive center dedicated to the history of the indigenous people who first settled the land 4,500 years ago. Wow. Yeah. They have a large soapstone quarry there that was used by these people to make cooking pots, bowls, oil lamps, and artwork. Awesome. Very cool. It's amazing people survived that tough kind of weather it still that is long ago it's, yeah it, it still is this little hamlet is at the heart of what tourism newfoundland and labrador call iceberg alley from the newfoundland and labrador website when it comes to viewing icebergs this is one of the best places in the world on a sunny day these 10,000 year old glacial giants are visible from many points along the northern and eastern coasts they come in every shape and size with colors from snow white to the deepest aquamarine. Despite their arrival from the Arctic every spring, our awe of them remains new year after year. Yes, I want to go and see them. I've never seen them before, ever. Believe it or not, Newfoundland is the only province in Canada that I have not been to. So I think you and I may need to make a specific effort to get there one day. Yes, I agree. It was one of these seasonal giant icebergs that the RMS Titanic struck before it sank 640 kilometers off the Newfoundland coast in April of 1912. What? The Titanic sank? What? The Titanic will make a great episode for us to tell one day. Are you channeling Scott? <laughs> you definitely are. Oh my goodness. Our story in this episode is more recent but no less tragic taking place in February of the year 2000. This is the story of Samantha Walsh. According to the book, Into the Night, the story of Samantha Walsh, written by her uncle Gordon Walsh, it took effort for Samantha to be born in Newfoundland. Samantha's father George and her mother, Millie Lewis Walsh, and her older brother Sandy had been living in Fort McMurray, Alberta, when Millie became pregnant for a second time. George, a proud Newfoundlander, wanted his daughter to be born at home, so when Millie was almost nine months pregnant, the family moved back to the Rock. On May 27, 1986, Samantha Bertha Walsh came into the world. Her family called her Sam, but as we didn't know her, we'll keep calling her Samantha, just out of respect. Millie got a job teaching primary school, and George went on to manage a seal oil processing plant in the, ta in the town of Bay Verte, just 26 kilometers south. I just didn't know they still process seal oil. I just didn't know that was still an industry. Apparently it is. Samantha was a generous, active, and creative girl. She was an average student in school. From Gordon Walsh's book, Into the Night, quote, she was crazy about sports, especially soccer, and even more passionate about music. She was a Celine Dion fan. Her favorite song was My Heart Will Go On from the film Titanic. She loved Newfoundland music too. She spent part of her last day alive singing Ennis Sisters and Fables songs with her dad as he drove to a local ski run. 
And we'll forgive her for the Celine Dion part, I think. Okay, I wasn't going to say anything about the Celine Dion thing, but who doesn't love Newfoundland music? It's the best. I like Newfoundland music a lot. Small towns like Fleur de Lis have suffered a lot economically over the past few decades and beyond, but Newfoundlanders are resourceful, hardy, and resilient people who are able to thrive in adversity. Uh, Newfoundlanders generally love their homeland, so often moving to the mainland for work is hard on them. They tend to leave their hearts behind. I know I did when I left Nova Scotia. Yeah, and my friend Pius, our friend Pius, he talks about Newfoundland a lot. Yeah, he is He is definitely still a Newfoundlander, even yep. though he's been here for 30 years. Yeah, that's true. It's weird, like, when you're from the Maritimes, or from many places, you feel real connection to home, but I think I anybody I've ever met from the Maritimes in Atlantic Canada all have that same feeling. And I know you don't. You didn't grow up feeling a particular affinity to uh, Calgary, where you were born, right? Nah, I was ready to move on. You were ready to nothing really. I was. <laughs> well, I you didn't wait to move away. Well, you did spend time in Saudi Arabia growing up, right? So yeah, but that was super temporary. You wouldn't. I would never consider that home. You just wouldn't because it was a temporary situation. There you go. <laughs> so you didn't grow up feeling connected to pretty much any place. Nope, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Some rural communities hold a civic event called Come Home Year where people who have moved for economic reasons are encouraged to return for a visit. Many people come from away to celebrate their roots with family and friends, and Fleur de Lis was planning for their official Come Home Year in 1996. The creative folks in Fleur de Lis wanted to do something special for the event, so they decided to create a tape full of songs by local musicians. Anyone who wanted to participate was welcome, and it was called The Children of Fleur de Lis. Ten-year-old Samantha Walsh jumped at the chance. She wanted to sing one of her favorite songs. She wanted to sing one of her favorite songs from Newfoundland, Saltwater Joys. That was the song that she sang, and it, uh, that was the Saltwater Joys, the song Samantha sang accompanied by guitar, is a haunting tribute to Newfoundland by a girl who clearly loved her homeland. Yeah, it was so sweet, and she had a lovely voice. I loved it. The song is written from the perspective of a Newfoundlander who's made the decision to stay, despite troubling times. The entire song is moving, but one verse really stood out to me, capturing the spirit of the Newfoundlander's love of the rock, and that is, quote, This island that we cling to has been handed down with pride by folks that fought to live here, taking hardships all in stride. So I'll compliment her beauty hold on to my goodbyes, and I'll stay and take my chances with those saltwater joys. Such a beautiful sentiment. It is. Sad. And she was 10 when she sang that. And for a 10-year-old, she was quite a good singer and could yeah. hold a note for sure. Uh, what did you think? It was, uh, it was very sweet, but it's also... Because her voice was so just young yeah. that it was not like sad until I started reading the words. And then it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, get you. Yeah, for sure. According to an article by Ryan Cleary for The Telegram, Samantha would eat salt fish for breakfast. Wow. Well, that's what some that's people what in Newfoundland do. do. Yeah. She didn't like the bones, though. So before she ate, her dad would lovingly debone the fish for her. Oh, George. Nice. As well as being an avid soccer player, Cleary goes on to mention that Samantha rode the little yellow boat that her uncle had made for her happily around the harbor in the summertime. So it would be like one of those little boats we used to see? Yeah. Cute. In winter, she loved snowmobiling with friends on her orange skidoo they called the Funkmobile. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in for the Funkmobile. I think the Funkmobile sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. Samantha was a cute little girl, but according to Cleary's article, not vain. She wasn't overly interested in fashion and makeup and was not shy about stomping around in rubber boots. Cool. Yeah. I like her. Being 14, she also had a boyfriend she'd been going steady with for some time. She told her friends she was in love. Nice. In his Telegram article, Ryan Cleary also related one story that the family often told when fondly remembering the playful Samantha. Quote, George and Millie built a fine home on a bluff above the harbor. George recalls the day he paid for lumber. George recalls the day he paid for the lumber. 
He went to talk to the sawmill operator, leaving Sam and the envelope of cash on the front seat of his truck. What? Wow. Just left an envelope of cash on the front seat? Yeah. When George returned, though, the money was gone. Okay. Sam, who was about two years old at the time, had opened the envelope and thrown the bills out the window to float away with the wind. (laughs) Sorry, George. (laughs) They're telling the story fondly. I mean, he's probably had a giggle about it. Yep. Yeah. On Sunday, February 6th, as it was on many Sundays, dinner was at Grandma Walsh's place for the Walsh family. George and Sam had been skiing that day. George and Samantha had been skiing that day at Copper Creek, so Samantha had been wearing ski pants. She took the clunky pants off when she got to her grandmother's place, leaving her comfier flannel pajama bottoms with long johns underneath. Samantha had picked up the bottoms at Value Village only the day before. They were decorated with black and white lambs on a pink background. I mean, for someone who wears long johns, I used to love wearing long johns. Just comfy. Millie and George were going to stay and play cards with Mrs. Walsh after dinner. Samantha had homework to do, so she left for home around 6.30 p.m. She hadn't bothered with getting into her ski pants again and left her gloves behind. Even though it was a cold night, minus 25 degrees Celsius, yeah, I know, she should be plenty warm with her coat, hat, and boots on for the three-minute walk home. Yeah, three minutes is about all I could take of that. The last words she said as she walked out the door were her usual, loves you, mom. When Millie and George got home a couple hours later, they expected to find Samantha there studying or even asleep. She was not there. It looked as though she hadn't been home at all. George and Millie got into their car and drove around the small town looking for any sign of Samantha along her usual routes with no success. They ended up at Skipper Shea's Lounge, the small restaurant tavern in town. No one around there had seen Samantha either. The couple met George's brother Gordon, who later wrote the book about Samantha. Gordon and his buddies went out into the cold looking for Samantha on their snowmobiles, while George and Millie stayed in calling friends and family that the girl might visit. No one had seen the 13-year-old grade 8 student. She'd vanished into the cold night air. The police and fire brigade were called at 11 p.m. to assist with the search for Samantha. Gordon and his friend searched the shoreline carefully. Pretty much the whole community was on high alert now, and almost the whole town showed up to help in the search. Wow. You know, in a town that size, everyone knows everyone or is even related in some way. Yeah, I've never lived in a small town like that small. It was bizarre that someone could go missing in the way Samantha did. She couldn't have gotten very far on foot, so where was she? Tom Walsh, the fire chief at the time, wanted to search the town thoroughly through again. From Gordon Walsh's book, Into the Night, quote, He instructed us to search everything, knock on every door, go in every shed, every cellar, check all cars, trucks, garbage boxes, under buildings, under patios, and walk around every standing structure. We were to check all fishing wharves, and, as Andy and I had discussed earlier, every place a person could hide or be hidden. We were organized into groups of two or three and sent out to different areas of the town. It was now a quarter past midnight and bitterly cold, end quote. Can you imagine the worry? Just, I feel, just thinking about her parents, just, like, where would, she was only, like, going to be gone for three, like, just three three minutes minutes away. Just a quick walk home. Yeah, it's going to be cold, but it'll be okay. People began arriving back at the town hall after searching their specific areas. None of them had seen anything. There were, however, some local kids who had some information, though. A boy told George and Millie that he'd seen Samantha walking along a place where he and a buddy had been jumping on the harbor ice. The two boys saw a local teen pull up beside Samantha on his three-wheel ATV. It was 16-year-old Michael Lewis. Sam hopped onto the ATV and the pair drove off. Michael Lewis was part of the search crews who'd been out looking for Samantha that night. Can I just ask a question? Sure. 
Why would they be jumping on the harbor ice? Back east and a lot of places with ice, you jump from ice flow to ice flow. Some people call it copying. I don't know why it's called that. But you jump from ice flow to ice flow just to see if you don't get wet. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, okay. but that's the way it is. All right. That's, yeah, just. That answers your that question? Mm -hmm. We didn't do that in Calgary. I was in Calgary in cold, cold winters, but we would never go near the Bow River. No. Because the Bow. <laughs> from Gordon Walsh's book, Into the Night, the young man Sam had supposedly driven away with was here now in the hall, eating sandwiches and drinking coffee. When Michael Lewis was questioned about giving Sam a ride on his ATV, he said he drove her as far as the bus shelter and dropped her off. From there, he hadn't seen where she'd gone, nor had he seen her since. The bus shelter across the street from George and Millie's house was Sam's last known whereabouts, end quote. That sounds dodgy. You've got an ATV. You can take her instead of across the street. It's not like you're driving a big car. You just drive her right up to the door. Exactly, and that was some of the questions that people had about this. Police arrived from Bay Vare. They questioned everyone with any information, including Michael Lewis, asking him things like you just asked. The canine unit arrived from Cornerbrook, a city almost three hours away, and the dog and officer went to work near, near the bus shelter. The dog didn't pick anything up. As the sun rose, so did suspicions of some of the searchers who were yet to find a trace of Samantha Walsh. They'd practically turned the whole tiny town inside out looking. What Michael Lewis said didn't quite make sense to some. Two and two were not making four. They asked why he had dropped her off at the bus shelter and not her house. Lewis, however, was adamant that that's what had happened. Makes no sense. It was minus 25. Yeah. None of it makes sense. No. Some folks didn't want to consider Sam had been abducted or worse yet, murdered. It was too much to contemplate that a local would hurt an innocent girl. There had to be some other explanation. Maybe she'd gone off with another kid on a snowmobile and they'd broken down far away out of town. No one else was missing, though, and Samantha's own snowmobile was right there where she'd left it. That doesn't make sense. Especially if she's got her own snowmobile. Had Samantha run away? If so, why? She was a generally happy kid from a loving home. No reason to run away. Doesn't seem like the information we've got doesn't seem like she would be running away. Right. Sometimes there's things we don't know about. That's true. Had she died by suicide, there was no reason to think that Samantha had killed herself either. Not only was her home life good, she had lots of friends and a boyfriend who she loved, and he cared about her too. Had she wandered out onto the ice and fallen in and drowned accidentally? That seemed like the best possibility to some, even though Samantha had been seen riding away from the harbor with Michael Lewis. Maybe... After he dropped her off, she walked back that way, got too close to the shore, and mistakenly slipped into the cold waters of the fleur-de-lis harbor. Hypothermia, as you know, can occur quickly in water that cold. Uncontrollable shivering, apathy, fatigue, weakness, and lack of coordination can set in quickly after the body temperature drops only a few degrees. And in water as cold as fleur-de-lis, unconsciousness and even death can happen in under 15 minutes. Yeah, I can only imagine. So, suffice it to say, a lot of attention was paid to the shore and the waters of the harbor. Hey folks, I wanted to tell our local Vancouver listeners about a good cause. It's an event to raise awareness around mental health and taking place locally. It'd be awesome if you could participate. Maximizer CRM is hosting Walk the Talk on Friday, May 10th to raise awareness for mental health. The Walk the Talk event will involve a fun, energetic walk around the False Creek Seawall to grow awareness for the Canadian Mental Health Association. Maximizer CRM is encouraging everyone to come out and walk the talk. Join the walking crew on Friday, May 10th at noon, starting and finishing at Concord Pacific Presentation Center at 88 Pacific Boulevard. This Walk the Talk event will be part of the Mental Health Week for 2019. The walk is free and donations are welcome for the Canadian Mental Health Association. For more info or to donate, please visit www.maximizer.com slash walkthetalk. Thanks. As the days went by, people came from all over to assist with the search for Samantha, 
Family even flew in from away to help and be there for the Walshes. Those who couldn't come to help called the Walshes with well wishes and their hopes for Samantha's safe return. In the meantime, police had been talking with Michael Lewis. He had refused to take a lie detector test. The red flags were beginning to wave. Just like the homicide hunter said. Yep. Yep. Even a police helicopter with infrared was brought in to comb the area, but their searches were fruitless too. In Gordon Walsh's book Into the Night, he wrote that someone claimed to have seen Samantha at a highway diner some ways away. Another person claimed a girl closely resembling the description of Samantha asking for bus fare there while in the company of a young male. Had Samantha been having a relationship that her parents didn't know about and run off with somebody else? Maybe an older boy. Could happen. That... 14, feel like you're older than you really are. Definitely. I know I did. <laughs> George Walsh himself went to investigate, but came home empty-handed and distraught. They later found out that this girl had not been Samantha at all when she returned on the bus to a flurry of questions. Millie wanted to believe that Samantha had run away. Although not, not necessarily safe, she'd at least be alive. Poor mom. There was evidence of a break-in at a local cabin. It looked as though someone may have slept there. Maybe Samantha was still in the area hiding out for some yet unknown reason. I don't know. Cops set up at the town hall and held several small press conferences at a local church to update the folks with progress of their investigation. As the days wore on, with no sign of Samantha, people in the town feared for the safety of their own children. What if someone really had abducted Samantha? Would this person do it again? Yeah, I guess you have to think of all options. There just, just doesn't seem right. Doors that were usually left unlocked were secured. The little town that felt a safe haven for so long was tainted by Samantha's disappearance. People were becoming really afraid. Yeah. You know? It's 240 people. It could be some one of 240 people that did it. Or it could be someone who just saw a target of opportunity and took it. Yep. As we've heard so many times. The media picked up on the story of Samantha's disappearance and local TV news stations talked about the case regularly showing Samantha's picture. Even people as far away as B.C. were now calling Newfoundland to find out more. Michael Lewis remained a person of interest in the case. He was the last person to have seen her alive. Yeah, I, yeah, I would question. Lewis still had his trike, and the neighborhood children were ordered to stay away from him. People gossiped about why the ATV hadn't been taken as evidence that night. Unknown to many... The RCMP were watching him closely. Some kids at Michael's school thought he might be a bad apple, but stopped short of accusing him of abducting Samantha. That's one thing I forgot. The small town thing, they uh, kind of protect each other. Yeah, and when that's part of it. And you can imagine how divisive something like this is in a tiny, tiny town like this. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would be feeling on one side that perhaps this young man has done something and other people would be very very vehemently arguing the like counter his parents yeah sure he, they live in the same city it sounds or small town sounds like exactly what were michael lewis's parents thinking with their son being under all that scrutiny i guess you know there's whispers of murder about your kid that had to be horrible the Lewis family was of French heritage and the Walshes were of Irish descent and the two families had roots in the town that stretched far back to the founding of the town in the 1800s. So both families had been there for a very long time. They lived together for a long time but now suspicion and fear began to rip the town apart. Over a week into the investigation many people talked openly they believed Samantha was dead. Some spoke clearly about who they suspected, Michael Lewis. Police were frustrated. They knew Michael Lewis wasn't telling them the whole story, but he'd clammed up. They needed him to talk. He wasn't doing himself any favors in his silence as far as suspicion went. Police were careful, though. They didn't want to have tunnel vision and miss a real clue that would lead to Samantha's whereabouts. So they were trying to gather evidence rather than just accuse somebody. Yeah, well, they didn't have any other choice. Exactly. Plus, it's small towns. Everybody's kind of watching what they're doing, too. Yep. 
Samantha's family was notified by phone by people, not the police, hearing news that Samantha had been found deceased. What? RCMP quickly asserted this was not true, but the damage had been done. The rumor mill victimized the Walshes once again. What, that was like a prank or something? Somebody said that they found a body. I don't know if it was a prank or somebody just telling a story. The Walsh's hopes for some kind of closure that night were dashed. That, I just, who would do that? I don't know. People in the small town began to talk to Michael Lewis directly, accusing him in Samantha's disappearance or worse. He didn't seem to be at all bothered by the challenges and was even more present than he'd ever been, tearing up and down the main roads on his ATV in front of the cops. What a jerk. Gordon Walsh, in his book Into the Night, says that he felt that Michael was challenging the police and the town in some way, brazenly showing up wherever he liked, even going to the informational conferences that cops held at the church. So did he think he was so clever that they would never figure out what he'd done? I guess, I don't know. But I think we know what happens, right? We're leading toward <laughs> that, I think. <laughs> okay, but still... Almost two weeks after Samantha's disappearance, the search was slowing down. Another rumor came that Michael Lewis had agreed to go to the town of Bay Vare to take a lie detector test. The next day, however, there was lots of activity outside the Fleur-de-Lis Town Hall. Gordon Walsh wrote in his book, Into the Night, quote, Today there were more police cars and police trucks than ever before. One huge truck with search and rescue written on the side in large letters sat near the hall. I asked the driver what it was doing here. He told me they got an order last night to be in Fleur-de-Lis in the morning. We have some high-tech equipment on board, he said. Any more than that, I can't tell you. I learned that they were going into the country to do some investigating at an old cabin I never knew existed. A man from town had built the place two or three years earlier and abandoned it when he moved away. Some of the local teenagers had taken over the place, and during the winter, this was the place where they hung out and partied. Michael Lewis had spent a great deal of time there, I heard, end quote. There's no keeping secrets in this little place. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no. Everybody knows everybody's business, but in a way, that's a good thing. Yeah. It keeps everyone safer, I think, somehow, even considering what's transpired here. Over the next couple of days, Michael waffled on whether or not he would take the lie detector test. He finally agreed. Eighteen days had passed since Samantha had gone missing. At, at the same time as Michael Lewis was off in Bay Vare taking his lie detector test, a man named Leonardo or Leo Caldi from Gander had a dog named Gypsy that he claimed could sniff out anything. And cool. he, had, he had offered his services. <gasps> Go Gypsy! Gypsy was rumored to be as awesome as Leo claimed. Leo drove the three and a half hours on treacherous winter roads to come to Fleur de Lis to offer his services without cost to the Walsh family. From Gordon Walsh's book Into the Night, after being introduced by the RCMP at a crowded meeting place at the church, Leo Caldi said, My dog Gypsy has found many people, some missing a day, others a week, and others six months, and she will find Samantha Walsh as well. He went on to say, If you are a young offender, you may get seven years. If you want to be stupid, you could and you will get 25 years. If you think I don't know what I'm talking about, just pick up the phone and call the Justice Department. After another brief pause, he continued, There's a young man serving 25 years now, and my dog put him there. As I said, Gypsy will find Sam, and when she does, she will backtrack and come to your home. She will go right to your door. Oh, I like this team, Leo and Gypsy. Starting at Grandma Walsh's house where Samantha had last been seen, Gypsy went to work, with a small group following, including Samantha's parents and her older brother Sandy. Gypsy followed the exact path that Samantha would have taken to where she was last seen getting onto Michael Lewis's ATV. Gypsy circled there a bit. She went right past the bus shelter where he claimed he'd left Samantha. Gypsy walked out of town and onto a skidoo trail. Eventually, just over four and a half kilometers out of town, the dog led the small search party to a small cabin. The dog was tuckered out and sat down. The group looked inside the cabin but didn't find much other than a hair that Millie felt was the same color and length of Samantha's, but nothing conclusive. Oh my god, how does that even work? 
I don't know. Gypsy's amazing. As the family made their way home, they wondered what had transpired with Michael Lewis's lie detector test. The results came that night. Michael Lewis had confessed to killing Samantha, but he hadn't been forthcoming on his lie detector test, which he failed. He had confessed to his father what he had done to Samantha at his grandfather's house afterward. What? Michael told his parents that he'd picked up Samantha and took her on his ATV to a cabin. There, Michael attempted to have sex with Samantha, and when she resisted, he took what he wanted and strangled her. Ugh. He told his folks he'd buried Samantha behind a cabin outside of town. But where would he bury her? It was minus 25. In the snow. He buried her in the snow. You'll hear in a minute. Okay. Yes, it was the same cabin that Gypsy the dog had led searchers to only hours before. Samantha was found just over 100 feet behind that same cabin where Samantha's family had been that night. At the time, they had no idea that their beloved daughter was only meters away, and thank goodness they hadn't found her themselves. As cops cordoned off the area, Samantha was found under the snow face down. Her pajama bottoms, long johns, and underwear were around her knees, and her shirt and jacket had been hiked up. Ugh. The next morning, the Walshes drove to the area wanting to see where Samantha had been found. They were chased off by a concerned police officer who told them that they'd be bringing Sam's body out on a snowmobile soon. They didn't want them to have to witness that. As they drove off, Millie asked to go to another vantage point where she could watch the goings-on, but changed her mind and asked to go to a place where they knew the van carrying Samantha's body would pass. <sighs> Samantha's boyfriend was awakened by his dad to learn that his girlfriend he'd been worrying about so much was dead. He sat in his bed and cried. <sighs> the autopsy took a week and then Samantha was br brought Samantha was brought to a funeral home in Bay Vare. The funeral for Samantha Bertha Walsh was held on March 2nd, 2000 at 7.30 p.m. at the St. Teresa's Roman Catholic Church in Fleur-de-Lis. The place was packed. Samantha Walsh was buried in the local graveyard in the freezing rain as her loved ones looked on. So sad and horrible. Michael Lewis made his first court appearance on April 6th, 2000. He'd been incarcerated since he'd been arrested and charged with the first-degree murder of Samantha Walsh. Samantha's family were spectators in the packed courtroom as a trial date was set for May 18, 2000. Pretty quick. Yeah. However, on the trial date, Michael's lawyers asked for bail, and a date had to be set for a bail hearing scheduled for June 22nd. On June 22nd, the application for bail was dropped, and the next proceeding would be a hearing on September 25th. Hmm. As he was only 16 at the time, this hearing would determine whether Michael Lewis's case should be tried in youth court or bumped up to the adult court, as the Crown was requesting. Which, because we're allowed to use his name, clearly he's tried as an adult. Yes, okay. they moved the proceedings to adult court. However, the proceedings were again postponed on Oct until October 10th, 2000. The hearing was put off for another day, and then another six days, and finally scheduled to resume all the way in St. John's on November 3rd, 2000. But it didn't happen there either. It was finally moved back to Cornerbrook for November 9th, 2000. The wheels of justice turned slowly. This is irritating. I can't imagine this poor family. Yeah, showing up day after day after day, there for each step of the way, and being told, nope, nothing's happening today, you gotta go home. Yeah. Like, let's get it over with. I understand that, you know, people have to go prepare stuff and that kind of thing. But shouldn't the system actually know that this is what goes on by now and acclimate for that? Maybe. But this is just lawyers' ways of kind of, I don't know, just drawing it it's, out. It sounds like delay, delay, delay. Yeah. yeah. To deliberately, I don't know. Yeah, it's crazy. Millie and George were there every day. And so were Michael Lewis's parents. Can you imagine they're all sitting in this Ugh. courtroom together, all staring at each other? It would be horrible. <sighs> Finally, on November 9th, 2000, Michael John Victor Lewis pled guilty as an adult to second-degree murder. A few of the Walsh family members had given victim impact statements, and the results of Samantha's autopsy had been read into evidence. The defense restated their plea of guilty to second-degree murder, and Michael Lewis 
was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after seven years. That just doesn't seem long enough to me. The seven-year stipulation is the most severe sentence a youth who's been convicted of second-degree murder can receive. So, even though he was bumped up to adult court, they still have to treat him as a young person. They make leeway for that. But, regardless, it was off to the pen for Michael Lewis. So, they're hoping he's going to be rehabilitated and then be a kind of useful member of society if they give him a short sentence? Like, still give him a chance to, I guess. Yep, to change his ways. In 2007, Michael Lewis, now 23, came up for parole. It was denied. Michael's parole was again denied in 2010. He was denied for a number of reasons. One, he was reported to be using drugs and gambling in jail. Two, he was not a model prisoner and seemed to care strongly about impressing other inmates rather than changing in any demonstrable way. Three, he displayed a continued lack of remorse or empathy for raping and strangling Samantha. Four, he led police and Samantha's family on for three weeks, even coldly participating in the search for her, knowing full well where she was and what had happened. Five, during that three weeks, he showed not a hint of shame or guilt. Six, he clung to the story about killing Samantha during, quote, horseplay, strangling her accidentally. This is even after the coroner said that Samantha had died after deliberate and appreciable force had been applied to her throat. Seven, girls in the neighborhood had called Michael sexually aggressive even before the murder, saying he'd touched them without consent. Even some of the smaller boys said he'd touched their genitals in the acts of bullying over the years. You know, like they gave him every chance and he just took the wrong road every single time. Sounds like it. Yeah. And he's one of those creeps in the small town that people kind of whispered about. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Michael was on eight. Michael was unwilling to admit to sexual assault, even though police were going to charge him with that, but dropped the charges when he'd pled to second-degree murder. Nine, he didn't want to address the parole board in person. He just wanted to do it through correspondence. What, like text? (laughs) I guess. Send somebody else to do your dirty work. And ten... The board felt Michael was a moderate to high risk to commit more sexually violent crimes. So he was told to reapply for parole the next time it came up. And? The Walshes had been at every parole hearing. In the fall of 2011, Michael Lewis was given day parole. He was finally admitting what his intentions were and what he had done on that cold February night, including, quote, post-death sexual activity, end quote. In January of 2012, George Walsh, Samantha's dad, passed away suddenly. On January 25th, 2013, after 13 years in prison, Michael Lewis was granted full parole. Millie spoke about her upset with Lewis's release after the decision. From a CBC article, quote, It's very disturbing to me, but, to be very honest, no great surprise, she said. Still, I was hoping and seeking that he would have served a longer time period. I guess if he spent forever in there, it wouldn't be long enough for me. Which makes sense. Further on, she says, I just hope and pray he never hurts anyone else, she said, because he has the personality of a, he's like a chameleon, end quote. Millie, Millie later received a, an award for volunteering in her hometown, and uh, and she kind of, as far as I could gather, didn't feel like she deserved it. Oh, Millie. Know? Yeah. It's horrible. What and do you... All I kept thinking of was that thing that Mr. Rogers says about looking for, seeing where the helpers are. Yeah. Well, now I'm just crying, so it doesn't matter. Like his mom told him just watch where the helpers are when something really awful happens, like a big and so like Leo and Gypsy, they were the helpers. Hmm. Gypsy and, and Leo? Yep. Yeah. The town? Yeah. There was a lot of good people doing the right thing there. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, interesting. Watch where the helpers are. Hmm. Before we go, we want to give shout outs to our new Patreon patrons. This week's good eggs are thank you to Beth Streeter. From Easton, Pennsylvania. Yay, Beth. Thanks, Beth. 
And thank you also to Annalena Enarsson from Orebro in Sweden. Oh, nice. Thanks. Rogue Silver Fox from Renton, Washington. Rogue? Rogue nice Silver one. Fox. Nice one. I like this one. Uh, I like them all. Yeah. Kelly DeVores mm-hmm. from Kearney, Nebraska. Thanks, Kelly. Rowan Hirschberger. Rowan. I don't know where Rowan's from. I think she could be from Ireland. I think so. Could Rowan's be. very Irish. I wonder if she or knits. Hirschberger is German, maybe. It's really hard to tell. Well, Scott she would know right away. She might just be from away. California. <laughs> the next person's from California. Oh, uh... I think I think Rowan's, let's call it. She's half German, half Irish, and she knits For beer sure. steins. She knits beer steins, beer stein cozies. Cozies, there cozies you go. Cozies for the beer stein. Rowan, thank you. Keep on knitting. Keep on knitting. Chelsea McNally, and she's from Gardena, California. Claire Keene, and she's from Ramsgate. Ramsgate? In Great Britain. Nice. Yes, thank you, Claire. Uh, Katie McIsaac, and I'm going to call it. Katie is from Nova Scotia because McIsaac is a very Nova Scotia name. <laughs> she could be related to Ashley McIsaac, the fiddler. I was just going to say, but that's probably... Maybe. Why? Just Remember cause... Ashley McIsaac? Things oh, didn't he... kind of end well. It didn't, but oh well. But he was a great fiddler at the time before we knew all the other things. Before he was fiddling with... <laughs> Don't say it, man. Right. <laughs> Poor Ashley... But Katie. K- Katie McIsaac, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. Were those ever proven? Were those accusations ever proven? I yeah. don't know. Victoria Kopeski? Kopeski. 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 Where is that? Kopeski. Kopeskiville? Is she a pesky person? No. no. Because she's she's giving us If money. anything, she's victorious. She's Victoria. victorious. Yep. But I would say Victoria Kopeski is from Connecticut. <laughs> and she she knows Martha Stewart I was going to say, she <laughs> probably knows her, and she may have used her services from time to time back in the day when Martha Stewart was a caterer. She went to one of those parties. Could have done. I think so. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so, too. And our last patron this week is Jacob Bell, and he's from Hamilton, Ontario. Oh, Jacob! Yeah, and Hamilton, uh, yes, we hung out in Hamilton this past summer. Oh, we did too, that's right. With your cousin. Do you know my cousin Andrea? Yeah, do you know? You're from Hamilton. <laughs> hey, Jacob Bell, do you know cousin Andrea? <laughs> I'm sure maybe your neighbors. What was that yummy barbecue place? I can't remember. Jacob what a... knows. You know that barbecue place. What is the yummy barbecue place, Jacob? It was really good. We had barbecue there, and, and it was it was along the main strip there. There was cherry trees nearby, remember? Because they had you pick cherries, and we got stuck in the rain. That was okay. It we was had fine. so much barbecue. Didn't matter. The rotten kids had to go in the one car. <laughs> they were rotten. <laughs> we offered. We're like, we'll walk back. We'll walk back, and then it got wind. Then we got rained on. Yeah. So that's it. Thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or for a one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal, not PayPal, at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And we did get some donut money this week. Uh, we got some from Mary P., yeah, who said that Mary. she wanted me not to use her last name, so okay. we are going to do that. Thank you, Mary P. Thanks, Mary. And also... We got some from Dr. Kelly from Oak Island, North Carolina. I didn't know that there was an Oak Island in North Carolina. That's amazing. So, I got so excited when I saw that. So Oak Island. Thank you, Dr. Kelly. Uh, I. It's interesting that a doctor would... Uh, we had two doctors in a row and two weeks in a row who are giving to us, which is interesting. Doctors. They... Uh, she... she uh, Dr. Kelly is appreciates that we're teaching her about Canadian history and culture, which I'm kind of horrified that. <laughs> but you know what? She said, have a donut with sprinkles. Uh, okay. I have to now. There's no way you can't. Yes. And we will share with Scott. We will. We'll share the sprinkles. <laughs> we'll just... Sorry, Scott. Here's some sprinkles. Sorry, Scott. You get the sprinkles. No, no. Right. I'll split it right in half. 
If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you... So thank you, Dr. Kelly. Much appreciated. And Mary P. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow or like on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends word of mouth is a powerful thing and it's working like a hot damn. Join us in our closed Facebook groups, The Yumber Yard, The Barnyard, dedicated to the love of animals, and The Craft Barn for the numerous creators in craft our community. Craft Barn, Craft Barn. People are now asking for like a, a book barn as well. Oh, hey, that's a good idea. Yeah. So we can do some book reviews and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Especially for the the person that keeps sponsoring all these books. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We can, we can do that. All right. So that's it for this week. Um, three more episodes after this one, and Scott will be back. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know who our co-host is going to be next week. It might be Carol. It might be somebody else. Hey, I'm the temp. I'll show up. Sorry I cried a little bit there, but uh, it was sad, but oh well. That's okay. That's why we love you, because you're human. Because I cry? Ugh. No. Okay, so until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.